Evening, everyone. Good to see you all. We um, weren't here last week. Very sadly, we missed seeing everyone, and we missed being in this place. But we were isolating, actually, for the second time in um, about five weeks, which wasn't the most fun. I know some of you guys have been in the same space having to do that. And um, we definitely felt quite cabin fevery, having a year and a half your old baby girl kind of locked in twice in five weeks was quite an experience. But uh, really grateful just after two exposures just to have been negative uh, for God's protection and all of those things. And I actually got my first Pfizer vaccine this week. So I'm also grateful for that. Should be uh, getting number two at the end of September. But it was really simple, straightforward. My arm was sore for about a day afterwards. But other than that, kind of smooth sailing and really grateful for all the people that are helping out get those doses going around the country. But tonight we're in Psalm 63. So if you do have a Bible, you can turn there. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen in a second. Um, And just while some of you guys are turning there, if you did miss Jamie's sermon last week um, from Ezra and Nehemiah, it'll be online this week. Otherwise, you can check it out on Facebook. But just as a vision cast for renewal and what God can do through His people in our city and world, I think it's just such an inspiring and beautiful message and definitely something worth checking out. But as we get into Psalm 63 tonight, I think this is really a passage for us today, really um, something that will encourage you. This is one of my favorite Psalms, so if you don't know Psalm 63 as we go through it, maybe you can check it out during the week, go through it a couple of times, and just kind of dwell on it, meditate on it, let God speak to you through it. But if you are looking at it through your Bible, there's a little subtitle under Psalm 63 that says, when David was in the desert or wilderness of Judah. Uh, Maybe your version has something slightly different there, but that's just a subtitle that gives us a little bit of context to what is going on in the Psalm that we're about to read. Now, to be honest, generally I skip over that. You know, I read that and I think, oh, that doesn't matter. David was in the desert, whatever. What is the good stuff in Psalm 63? But this is really important for our understanding of this. Because David's not just wandering around the desert, you know. This isn't a hike. This isn't just a holiday for him. This isn't a scenic trip uh, enjoying the arid flora and fauna of the desert. He is on the run for his life. He's fleeing. He's in danger. He's worried about his future. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And it's funny, as you read that, um, if you know the story of David well, you'll know that that doesn't just happen to David once. That actually happens to him a bunch of times in his life. So as we come to Psalm 63, as we know that he's fleeing for his life, it's actually even more important that we know, well, which time is it so that we can understand some of the context of what he's writing about, you know? Which time is he fleeing? Why is he fleeing? Why is he feeling what he's feeling? And there's quite an important hint for us in verse 11 of Psalm 63, because in that part of the passage, David calls himself king. And we can sometimes miss this, you know, we just think, oh, king, talking about God. But David is speaking about himself there as king. Now, if you don't know the Bible well, or you're new to some of these characters, David is the guy who killed Goliath with the sling and the stone and went on to be the king of Israel. So he's writing this when he was king, later in his life, not in his early years. And that means, because there was only once in his life when he was king that he ran for his life, That means that he was running from his own son, Absalom. And that's crazy. I mean, I've got a little girl, like we've already spoken about her. Just the fact that his child was trying to kill him. Absalom, who some theologians say was his favorite son, his his most beloved child. 
Absalom was the one who had overthrown the kingdom, a little coup d'etat going on there, had taken David's throne, was king, was trying to kill David to kind of, I don't know, condense power, all of those things. And David is on the run. He's lost everything, but because his son has taken it from him. This is every father's nightmare going on in Psalm 63. So that's the context of what we're reading. David has lost everything. And I think the challenge when we read a passage like this is we think of David as a two-dimensional just character on a page rather than a real man who lived and had feelings and emotions and was going through trauma in the midst of all that's going on. And if we see him as just two-dimensional, then we can disengage, you know? But as we go through this, I'd love it if you put yourself in David's shoes and thought, if this was me, if this was my life, if this is what I was going through, what would I be feeling and how would I respond? Because David's lost everything. He's lost his job, his title. He's the king, he's lost his kingship, he's lost his kingdom, he's lost his wealth, he's lost his power, he's lost his family, he's lost his relationship with his favorite son. And there's no, oh, I can't imagine there would be a way that he would recover that. That's not gonna be an easy thing after your son tries to kill you just to sit on a couch and talk it through and be fine, go back to normal. He's lost a relationship that he cares about deeply. He's lost his safety and peace. He's running scared. His life has been ruined. And as we read through Psalm 63, we find the words and prayers of someone who has lost everything. It was quite significant. So before we read it, I just want you to think for a second, what do you expect David to say in Psalm 63? And then, if you were writing out the psalm, and I think that could be a really good like, practice for us to do when we get home. If you were writing out a psalm in that situation, what would you say? What would your words be if you were in David's situation? What would you pray and say to God if this was you? So this is Psalm 63. Have I said something bad, Hannah? You're worrying me. I'm worried sick that I said the wrong thing. Every now and then I look at someone's face and think, is my fly down? Did I say the wrong word? Did I accidentally swear? Like what came out of my mouth? So as long as we're all good, if I did the wrong thing, I'm so sorry. That, that's actually in the original Hebrew. My life sucks. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's good to know. Psalm 63, verse one. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I think of you as I lie on my bed, I will meditate on you during the night watches because you are my helper. I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. But those who intend to destroy my life will go into the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the power of the sword. They will become a meal for jackals, but the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will boast, for the mouths of liars will be shut. And this psalm starts with a bit of a lament. Obviously, he's in the desert on his own, lost everything. But it ends in this high point of joy that we'll talk about in just a second. But we're going to start in verse 11 before we go back to the beginning. And that is because right at the end, we read this. 
But the king, I've already spoken about this, the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will boast, but the mouths of liars will be shut. And here we find David who has lost everything. He finishes this prayer of lament with his head up, his back straight, his chest puffed up, and he's confident. You know, here what we read is he's rejoicing, not complaining, which is amazing, because I don't think that's how I would end the psalm. You know, life sucks, that's what would come out of me too. But he's rejoicing in God, celebrating the victory of God, not complaining in his circumstances. And here he calls himself the king, which is kind of true, not true, as we've been saying. Yes, he's the king. God has chosen him as king. God calls him king. God anointed him as king. But his son Absalom has stolen the kingdom from him and now is calling himself king in Israel. So he's been stripped of everything by his son, but he still knows who he is and what God has called him to. And that's a big thing. David is not defined by his circumstances. He's defined by his God. David is not defined by his circumstances. He's defined by his God. He's not defined by loss or difficulty or hardship. He's not defined by success or failure. He is looking to God's word and what God says about him to define who he is. And again, I think this is where we could stop and say, well, what are some of the circumstances right now in my life that are defining me or are trying to define me, that I'm having to fight from defining me? And maybe even more importantly, what is it that God says of me? Do you know what God says of you? Do you know who God calls you, the words he uses to describe you? Do you know how God defines you? Because if not, we'll be defined by the things going on around us. What is defining you? And I guess as we read this, the question is, how do you go from complete defeat and lament to the confidence and security that we see David's got at the end of the psalm? And that's really, as we go through Psalm 63, what we see, how to live in the kind of way that David does. In verse 1, David is on the run from his son. He's in the desert in the heat of the day. He's hungry and thirsty. He's lost everything. He's in need. And what does he say? He says, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you. And again, that would probably not be my prayer. It's not Krista and Hannah's prayer, you know. I think I would probably say something like this, honestly. I'd start the same as David. God, you are my God. You know, it seems good to start politely. God, you are my God. I've served you all these years. Where are you? I need help. I need protection. I need food and drink. I need to get out of here. Why am I going through this? Why am I here? Where are you? I need you to provide, God. It's probably my verse one of Grant Psalm 63. But David doesn't do that. He prays and he says to God, I need you. David thirsts for God, not for what God can do for him. He thirsts for God, not what God can do for him. He seeks God. His body is weary for God, which means David and I aren't on the same page. David and I don't process situations the same way. And there's something I can learn from him. I want to learn from David's example. Why does he come to God in this way? And I want to learn from his example to be that kind of man who does that sort of thing. So he carries on in verse 2, and it says, So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. 
I was so struck by how that starts. So I gaze on you. I gaze on you. David's vision of God changes his response to his circumstances. And also, seeing God in that way changes the way he responds. It, it gives him the resources that he needs to deal with the things that he's facing. And what David does is he looks at God, and when he sees God in a fresh way, he sees God's glory and power. Those are the two things we're told about there. And I guess I want to ask you that. Are you looking to God, and are you looking to his power and his glory at the moment? Are you seeing those attributes of God in the circumstances you're facing? Are you seeing his power? Are you seeing his weightiness? Which is kind of a weird word to use, but it's an important word to use because in Hebrew, the word for glory is the word kabod, which means weight. There's substance to it. And that kind of translates to our culture too because sometimes we'll talk about someone who's got an authority or a presence to them and we'll say that their words were weighty. There was, there was substance to what they said. Or I'm sure you've experienced this in some way before. Someone walks into a room that's got a presence about them, an authority. There's something about them where they walk in the room, the atmosphere changes, people go quiet, people turn around and look at them, people act differently or they start to whisper because they want to hear what this person is saying or see what they're doing. There's like a presence about them, an authority. And when he speaks about the glory of God, he's speaking about something like that. God's glory is his weightiness his authority, his power, his beauty, something that changes the rooms that he comes into. God is like that. And David comes with his problems in Psalm 63 with the things that are weighing him down and he gazes on God and he sees God in this way. He sees his power and his glory and David has changed. He feels lighter in light of who God is. He feels lighter in light of what he sees. He feels different. It's almost like he's relieved you know, he's dealing with these things and then he sees what God is like and he's reminded of God's glory and his power. And it's like he goes, I forgot that. You know, I, of course, of course, God is big. God's not little, God's real. God's not just an idea, God is the truth. God's not just slightly strong, God is all powerful. And in the midst of everything going on around me, in the midst of the desert and my son and losing every, all of this, I'd lost sight of God's bigness and everything around me had grown so big. It was like the light of God was drowned out by all of these tree-sized experiences around me. But now I've seen, now I've seen God's greatness. I've seen his power. I've seen his glory. And actually, my chest is puffed up. I'm encouraged with how great God is. It doesn't mean the thing he's not going through is really, really hard. We'll see that in a little bit. But it's like he goes, despite the fact that where I am right now is really hard, God is big. I serve a big God, a great God, a weighty God. And in verse three, we see this. He says, my lips will glorify you. It's like he's in his problem, he sees God, and he just starts to praise. And he says he'll praise him because your faithful love is better than life. I think it's one of my favorite phrases in the whole Bible. God's faithful love, his consistent love, his unchanging love is better than life. Have you experienced that? Do you believe that? Which is huge. Tim Keller talking on this verse comments on this phrase and he says, what is so important to you that if you lose it, life would be meaningless? David looks at God and he says, you are better than life. You are better than life. 
So what for you if you didn't have it, or if you had something and you lost it would make life meaningless? Because that thing for you is what you live for. Th that thing is your life. That thing is what you worship. That thing is what you look to save you. That thing is where your hope is placed. That is your life. And that's what David is speaking about here. For him, he's lost everything, but God is his life, so he's okay. I think you know um, I enjoy a good movie or a good series. And if you do too, I'm sure you've seen this very cliche, cheesy scene in like a rom-com or a family comedy or something where everyone's downstairs in the lounge and generally it's a teenager. So if you're a teenager here, I'm not taking any shots at you. This is just the, the stereotype. But the teenager storms in the door, goes past everyone without saying hi, goes up the stairs, runs into their room, slams the door, plops down on their bed. And the family kind of look around themselves and someone goes in, mom or dad or I don't know, brother or sister goes into the room and says, is everything okay? And they say, my life is over. You know exactly what I'm talking about, hey? Maybe you did that back in the day, I don't know. But in that kind of scene, you know exactly what's going on. Something's happened at school. You know, they had a really bad day. Either they've been embarrassed in front of the whole grade or the whole school, or they didn't get into the team they wanted or the scholarship they wanted or they failed a test or the boy or girl they like doesn't like them back. And that thing was their life. And now they've lost it. They're embarrassed, they're humiliated, their reputation's gone, their dreams and hopes for the future are gone. They've lost what was life to them. Their life is over. And I, I mean, I think I watch that kind of thing and I go, that's so stupid, you know, because I'm not a teenager now. But at the time, that happened to me. And as we grow up, what happens is maybe our wants and desires, the things we put our hope and trust in change and look a little bit more refined or sophisticated or, or less cliche like that, but we do the same thing too. We find our life in these things that we put everything into, and if they're taken away from us, if we lose them, if we don't get them, we are devastated. We're absolutely devastated because they can be our life. But for David... God is the only one who is big enough to say, you are my life. The Lord is my life. He's seen his power. He's seen his glory. He's seen his greatness. He's seen God in this way that he, his breath has been taken away. And he knows that even though he's lost everything else, he still has God. He knows that no job, no salary, no promotion, no house, no attractive partner, no car, outfit, sex, experience, travel, success, fame, glory, applause, nothing is going to meet the need in the way God can because the Lord is his life. Do you believe that? For David, he's experienced this reality over the years. Remember, this isn't the first time he's been on the run. So David now, at whatever age he is when this happens, He's, he's been through this before. He's experienced this before. He remembers the times before when he found himself in the same place, the suffering, this hardship, this difficulty he's in. He remembers the things he tried, the roads he went down, the things he looked to, and he knows that it's God alone that satisfied him and met his needs and was his strength and was his life because he's experienced this kind of loss before, so this isn't new for him. So he knows from personal experience that what he needs most in the desert when he's hungry and thirsty on the run for his life is God, nothing else. He knows the Lord is his life. That's, that's true for David. He knows it's true. And for some of us, maybe for the first time, some of us again, 
it's time for us to gaze on the Lord, to fix our eyes on Him, to see who He is in His glory, to be reminded of His power, to reevaluate God for ourselves in light of the things that we're facing. Have we got any BBC fans here tonight? British Broadcasting Corporation. My wife's from England, so we watch a little bit of BBC. Now, I'm not a big Antiques Roadshow fan, but I've watched a bit of it. And that show's been around since 1977. The gist of it, if you don't know what it is, is people bring their antiques, heirlooms, knickknacks, weird things in their attics or basements or in their house, things that they think maybe this is worth something, and they bring them to these experts who are traveling around the UK, and they take a look at them and they value them and say, wow, you know, you've got gold on your hands, you should sell this, and they'll give them a value, or they say, sorry, sweetie, maybe throw this one in the bin, this isn't, unless there's sentimental value, this isn't worth anything right now. And I looked up the most valuable item they ever found on the Antiques Roadshow. And it's an amazing story. This um, retired farmer named Terry Nourish, he had this thing in his home. It was a five-foot-tall jardinier. Think, think of a big, thin vase. And he found this in his home. In fact, he'd had it always. His dad in 1946 had spent 100 pounds at like a garage sale. And he'd bought a bunch of things from this person, and this jardinier was one of them. And he brought them all home, and they'd just become part of their family life. They'd all been in the background of life. And Terry Nourish had inherited these things from his dad, and this jardinier was there in his home. He didn't think anything of it. In fact, what they did is they planted plants in it, you know? And the kids, when, I mean, they were in the UK. On a rainy day when they had cabin fever inside, they would play soccer inside and use this beautiful vase as their goalposts. So that was sitting inside just to one side, absolutely no value. And they didn't realize that this was a really fancy piece of art made by Christoffel. Any Christoffel fans here tonight? <laughs> He's not that well known, but this was very valuable. It had been made for this exhibition in Paris in 1874. It had been displayed there and then just passed on and forgotten about through the Nourish family line. And then in 1991, out of curiosity, the Antiques Roadshow in town, Terry Nourish says, I'm gonna take this and a few other items just to be valued, have them check them out. We know these are older, let's see what they say. And they looked at this and said, this is worth 10,000 pounds, about 200,000 rand. I mean, if we had something at home with 200 grand, sell that, be very happy right about now, you know? We'd take you all out for dinner, it would be a wonderful time. But then 20 years later, after the family have started to treat this item differently, you know, they're not playing soccer with it anymore, they're not planting things in it, this is now a valuable part of their home, the family decided, you know what, we're actually gonna sell this. So they took it to Christie's in London, to the auction house, and they, they brought it out, and it was bet on, and the, the first, um, not bet, the first bid was 100,000 pounds. Kind of jumped from 10 grand 20 years before, hey? It eventually sold for 668,000 pounds. In today's currency, there would be 13 and a half million rand. We'd be smiling a little bit more if you got that for some big vase that you had in your home. And I want you to think about that. In the background of the Nourish home had been this old family heirloom, this big vase they hadn't thought much about, you know, the kids could kick the ball against it, they didn't really care. They didn't know its value, but it was valuable, it was special all along. They just had lost sight of that over the years. 
And then as they had an external person come in and evaluate it and tell them the value, all of a sudden this item became special again. All of a sudden it took on value and the way they treated it changed. And then when they took it to Christie's, when they got 13 and a half million rand for it, it changed their life and filled them with joy. And I want to share that because it's very easy for God to be in the background of our lives. We forget his value and his importance. And when we see it again, when we reevaluate God for ourselves, we see his power and glory. And all of a sudden, our lives are changed and we're filled with joy, just like the Nourish family with that old family heirloom. In Psalm 63, David sees God in a fresh way. He's known about God his whole life. He's grown up in a God-fearing home. God has been in the background of his life always. At times, God's been in the foreground. He's been very, very close with God. But in this moment, he re-evaluates who God is in light of his circumstances. And he sees God in a fresh, life-changing, joy-filled way. Changes everything for him. Before David could kind of get by with this, you know, unevaluated, familiar faith, and we do that from time to time, you know, you're like, oh, I'm a Christian, I go to church, I do life group, I do the Christian stuff, all of that. We carry on with Jesus in the background, but in this moment, Jesus came front and center in his life, and he was filled with joy in the hardest possible situation. He sees the significance of God. He feels the weight of the glory of God in his life, and he's changed. So he really takes a look at God. And when he sees this glory and power, he lifts his hands and his mouth praises God because of how good he is. And the next verse says this, verse five, you satisfy me as with rich food. I love that. David's testimony of his experience with God is that God satisfies him completely. I'm sure you guys have had an experience of this somewhere where you went to a wedding or a feast or a banquet or a all-you-could-eat buffet or something and the food was amazing, and there was anything you could desire, and you ate it all, and they had great wine or great drinks and great dessert and great whatever, and when you drove home or when you got into bed that night, you thought, I don't want anything. I'm absolutely full, perfectly satisfied and content. And that's what David is saying. You know, before he was dissatisfied, but as he's come into the presence of God, he doesn't want anything else. He's perfectly satisfied. And our culture around us is constantly promising us these things that can satisfy, these things that will meet our needs, the things that will fill our hole, whatever it is, that they will help us out to get what we most want. And I hope you realize this, our culture preaches, it evangelizes, it tries to convert us to its way of thinking, to, to the things it values, it believes in and holds to so significantly. But as many of us have felt in the last year, of difficulty and dissatisfaction, often the promises that we're offered by the world around us actually are shallow or hollow. They satisfy us a little bit or for a little bit of time, but they don't satisfy us completely in the way David is saying God does, as with the richest of food. God is the one who can satisfy us completely. And David is an example to us of this because David was king. He had everything he wanted. He was rich, he was powerful, he was influential. Any of the things that the world might preach, this is what you need, David had it. And now it's all been taken away from him, he's lost it all, and he's not looking to those things, he's looking to God alone because he knows God is the only one who can really satisfy him. He's not grieving not having the stuff. I mean, 
Think about it as we read through the psalm. Not once in those 11 verses does David complain and say, my stuff is gone. I've lost all of these things that I had. No, he's just celebrating the fact that he still has God. Have you come to Jesus and left the other stuff behind? You know, whether you've still got it or not, but in your heart, you've got Jesus and that's enough. Jesus never promises us the stuff that our culture promises. He doesn't promise to satisfy us with that stuff. He promises us that in himself is what we're most looking for. And he says that our greatest needs are satisfied in him. A need for salvation, for forgiveness, for new life, for eternal hope, purpose, meaning, truth. Promises all of those things and more are found in him, him alone. Jesus satisfies us, but he says to us that he can only satisfy us when we come to him in the way that David did in Psalm 63. Now, just to remind you, because I know this could have slipped out of our minds, that when David says he's satisfied completely, he's still in the desert. You know, his son is still after him. He's still not king. His situation hasn't changed. His circumstances are the same. It's just he's seeing differently. Everything's been reframed for him in light of Jesus. And he's praising because he's satisfied because of what he's seen in his God, that God is better than life, that having God is better than good circumstances, that God is better than health, wealth, and happiness, that God is better than safety and security. So because he has God, he has all that he needs, even though he's lost so much else. I'm pretty sure he loves circumstances to change. No, David wasn't weird like that. He didn't want to stay in a difficult situation. He wanted them to change, but even if they didn't, he was content in the fact that he had God. Now, for some of you, you're struggling to engage with this because that's not how you're feeling right now. I mean, even as Shell shared, you know, this morning she's sitting in bed, feeling anxious, lots on her mind, busy with what's going on, struggling to engage with God, and you're like, well, I feel more like that than what you're saying out of Psalm 63. It's why I love the Psalms because they're so honest and real about our emotions. I mean, if you want to learn to pray, if you want to learn about knowing God, I think the Psalms are an amazing book to be. And this is what we see next in verse 6. After all of these things we've said so far, in verse 6, David says, When I think of you as I lie on my bed tonight as you go home and go to sleep, I meditate on you during the night watches. Now, that doesn't mean that David is a prayer warrior and he stays up 24-7 just going for it, praying to God. That means he's anxious. David can't get to bed. He's lying in bed and he's praying through the watches of the night. That's the military guard changes, you know, as the, the next set of soldiers comes to watch the wall and make sure everyone's safe. David can't go to sleep. So one set of guards comes and goes, next set comes and goes, and so on and so on, and he's still awake. He's anxious, he's worried, but he's not tossing and turning because he's looking to God. He's leading himself in his anxiety. He's leading himself in these feelings that he's got. And he's bringing all of the thoughts and feelings to God in prayer throughout the night rather than being overwhelmed by them. He's leading himself rather than being led by these feelings and thoughts. And this is what he says. Because you are my helper, I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. The, the ESV translates verse eight a little bit differently. So I wanted to share that with you too. It says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And in these two verses, and actually in the whole chapter, there's a lot of pictures of God. 
You could do this when you go home tonight. Just read through Psalm 63 and say, what does this tell me about God? Or what are the pictures of Him that help me to understand Him better? And here we see that God is called our helper, and David could definitely use a helper in the situation he's in. But then it says that David finds his help in the shadow of God's wings. What does that mean? Well, this is a bit of a mother hen picture going on here. We see this a couple of times throughout the scriptures. Even Jesus talks about gathering his chicks like a mother hen would gather them under her wings. So God is shown as father throughout the scriptures. But here we see a very maternal picture of God keeping the chicks safe and warm underneath his wings. Now my daughter August, who's popped up a few times tonight, is a year and a half old. And whenever she gets scared, she runs to me. It's funny, she doesn't run to Shell if I'm around. She comes to me. And it's this very cute thing. Uh, I can see terror in her face. Like, she hasn't really faced anything too tough, but she's just terrified of a sound or something. And she runs to me. And when she's in my arms, she's fine. You know, she's okay. And it'll be something like this. You know, we, we live in a flat that, uh, not the aircon, <laughs> the intercom goes off, bing, August terrified. <laughs> like, what is that? What is going on? Runs to me. I'm holding her. Okay, she's good. I, as long as I'm with Dada, I'm okay. I'm good to go. And when she was younger, we'd open a black bag, you know, to put it in the bin, you know, change, throw out the trash, all of that. August, here's the black bag open, and us, you know, fan it out to put it in the bin. Terrified. If we opened up Velcro, that was like the worst noise you could imagine. Runs to dad to be safe. And she would wrap her legs around me and cling to me so that she would feel safe. And it was this really crazy thing. I would sometimes try and put her down or put her in her high chair, and she was not going down. She was clinging to dad. She was defying gravity, like just holding on to me. There was no ways I was going to get her out of my arms. And that's very similar to what's going on with David here in this situation. It's like a child who knows that they're safe in the arms of their parents. Here David is saying, actually, I know that I'm safe when I'm with my God. When I'm in his presence, when I'm under his wings, I am safe. And because of that, my soul clings to you. My soul defies gravity, wrapping itself around you, God, because I need you at this time. You are not putting me down. Even if you try, I am clinging to you, God. That's what he's saying. Because David knows under God's wing, he is safe. He's warm. He's where he needs to be. And because of this, because of who God is, because he's safe in that place, David can say this in the last three verses. Verse nine. But those who intend to destroy my life will go into the depths of the earth. They'll be given over to the power of the sword. They'll become a meal for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will boast, for the mouths of liars will be shut. We see here that David doesn't know what the future holds. It's unclear. It's uncertain. He's still in this place of anxiety and worry. His son could get him. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him doesn't know if he's going to prosper again. He doesn't know what the future is, but he is with God. And that means that even if the worst thing he could imagine happens, even if Absalom catches him and tortures him or kills him, even if he suffers, he is with God. And he knows, he trusts in God because he knows that God is good and will do what is right in those circumstances. So even though he doesn't know the future, he trusts in God. And he rejoices in him. 
And Harbor City, I want to say to us, as we face 2020, as we face 2021, as all sorts of things are going on personally and around us, whatever those might be for you, that God is as good, if not better, than David promises in Psalm 63. David's doing his best to capture this, but actually God is even greater than words can explain. So as we end tonight, I want to ask, will you seek him and gaze upon him as David does? Will you experience what he says here, that his love is better than life? Will you cling to him? Will you be satisfied in him? Could we be the kind of church that Psalm 63 speaks about here, a church, a people who trust in their God and rejoice in him, whatever's going on? Can the band come up? Can I ask you guys to come up? We're, we're gonna sing a song in a second. Yeah, if you guys could stand, that would be really great. We're gonna sing a song now called The Blessing. Some of you know it. We've sung it here a bunch of times before. But as we sing this song, in a sense, you know, Kirsten and Anarito singing these truths about God's blessing over us. So I'd love it if you received these words to yourself as they sing them. But if you can, I'd love you to sing too and actually sing them to one another. Actually, we're reminding ourselves of God's goodness and his blessing and his trustworthiness as an encouragement. So we wanna, we wanna almost let this wash over us personally. We wanna be encouraged by it. We wanna encourage one another. And we wanna respond to Psalm 63 as we do. So Lord, just as we sing the song together, we just welcome you here and we take that first step of David's and we gaze upon you. And I ask even now, Lord, we, we see you, but we wanna see you in a fresh way. We know you, but we want to know you more personally and more powerfully. So would you come and be with us now, we pray, and wash us with your blessing and truth.